like the American dream, right? It's like you, you spend your life working for your retirement. Golly, what a lot of shit, man. I would tell young Lori to slow down and allow the season to do its work. Don't say healthy, don't say happy. Don't say well, and don't say normal. You show me one person on the planet who's healthy, happy, normal, and well. Who is that person? Is there something good that can be gained quickly? I don't know. Welcome back to the Sons podcast, guys. I'm Sam, and Blaine is here as well. Uh, today we have a podcast where we got to sit down with Morgan and his friend Brian Dreer, who is the senior terrestrial biologist here in Colorado. He's just got this amazing background in wildlife management and conservation. Got his master's studying bears. Uh, how many people so do you know awesome. so have much a master's than in, what I got my master's in bears? Uh, so he brings this wealth of knowledge about the environment and animals and healthy balances to the table. And then Morgan and Brian have this friendship and dynamic in the woods. Yeah, so a wide-ranging conversation. This really is one of my favorite episodes. Brian knows everything about the interrelationship between people and cities and animals and the wildlife populations among whom we live. You'll notice very quickly that this conversation steers towards hunting. And while it's not strictly a hunting episode, what we're talking about is intimacy with wilderness and actually relying on big game animals uh, for your family's food in a major degree really is a core part of the intimate engagement with wilderness of a lot of the men at this table. But even if you're not a hunter, there's lots to be had here on developing a wilderness-shaped soul with two men who have spent decades doing it. Brian, Morgan, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey guys. Yep. We've already had here. so many good stories shared um, that I'm... <laughs> I'm, I've got high hopes for what's coming. Finally <laughs> hitting record. Exactly. Yeah. So what we were just talking about, and uh, is definitely going to prime the pump here for the entirety of this conversation on wilderness, is uh, would you say again, what's the deal with the number of pronghorn that currently live in the state of Colorado? Yeah, so it's probably, well... An undersung story, story, an undertold story, um, just of what the success of just wildlife conservation in the U.S. is, and um, it's really fascinating. Uh, you actually think of a time um, when European settlement happened in Europe. Uh, what we have is a system where wildlife is not owned by the public, it's owned by the property owner. And so what's really fascinating with the formation uh, of government in the U.S. and a variety of different court cases, it was actually ruled that wildlife belongs to the people uh, as a publicly owned resource. Um, and so that being the case, what 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 happens then is it changes the conversation. No, no matter where they reside, they're, they're, they're ownership of all of us. And it's a really cool story. It's, it kind of forms this basis of kind of, they call it the North American model of wildlife management. And so think of uh, just the formation of our country and, and what happens is, you know, settlement st starts back east and it slowly advances across the west. And you have things like gold rushes. And, and at those times, you have situations where um, there is no agriculture. So people are, are, are homesteading here, and they're trying to figure out essentially how to feed themselves. And so that starts this market hunting, because that's what's there, right? It's what's on the landscape. And that honestly, in a huge way, just just causes decimation of, of most of our wildlife herds. We have massive reductions in the American bison uh, to very, very like limited amounts of range. You have extinctions of a bird called the passenger pigeon. And, um, you know, we have this time of massive decline. And then um, at the formation of many states, 
States now have the regulatory authority of the wildlife as the trustee of the public resource that's out there. And so, um, you know, just before the 1900s, uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife forms as an agency. And with that, they start enforcing game laws. We, we shut down seasons on a lot of animals, uh, those types of things. And we start to provide regulation through game wardens, through licensing, through those things. And at the same time, you have licenses contributing to a, a pool of money that can be used to then conserve those species into the future. So to put that in perspective, in 1943 or 46, one of those, uh, right around in the mid-1940s, there's about 5,000 pronghorn left in Colorado at that time when regulation started. And today, in 2019, we have about 85,000. And what's important, and the biggest story of all of that, is that from the 1940s to today, we've hunted those species. A lot of people have fed their families with those species. They've had so much enjoyment, so much recreation, so much time together, so much time in the woods all of that, and it's led to, you know, the largest pronghorn herd that we've ever seen in Colorado to this day. And so it shouldn't be forgotten that it's, it's through those conservation efforts of managing a public resource that that's been provided, and it, it helps to make sure that it's there for the future, and, and it will be there. And it's not just pronghorn, it's elk, it's deer, it's, it's any number of species that have all benefited from hunters and anglers paying in to, to conserve those species for the future and for future generations. Morgan, you were saying that you just attended a hunter safety course and that there's an equal number of people that are pro hunting as there are anti hunting. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating because, you know, Dave Ramsey talks about unemployment and when unemployment is at 3%, it's kind of this vague statistic, but the fact is you're either employed or you're unemployed, right? They're very clear categories. And so similar to that, if you think about hunting, most of us that we interact with either come from a hunting culture where that's normative, or there's a lot of anti-hunting or even thinking that's a bad thing or negative thing. But statistically, 5% of the American population are hunters or pro-hunting. 5% are involved with organizations like PETA or just have a posture of anti-hunting. But that leaves 90% of people that statistically kind of don't care, where it's like, hey, if you want to hunt, great. If you don't want to hunt, great. But it's fascinating to me because that's 90% of people that aren't anti-hunters or necessarily in the woods today, but they're up for grabs for the possibility of of what life can be found through it. I I think that's so... So fascinating, especially in, in the words that you just used, Brian, that the hunters and anglers are paying in to a system of conservation. Like just that sentence alone, I think would surprise 95% of the population right. of the United States. You're like, but when I think of hunters, I think of anglers, I think of people killing animals. Right. Like what, what do you mean conserving animals? Like that engagement isn't that contradictory? And they do, right? I mean, you know, we've all harvested animals, taken them home. Like I said, we know where our meat comes from. We feed our families with that. But understand, it's the revenue of that that allows for scientific study to be used to understand what's limiting a population. You know, how many are there? How many can we how how many can we sustain to to take off through a harvest? Uh, all of that essentially is necessary to make wise decisions with the resource. Understand this is a renewable resource. It's it's a resource that's out there. Biology happens out there. It reproduces. It, it puts offspring onto the landscape that a surplus of those can be harvested, very, you know, um, can be harvested and taken home and and still very much fall into the spirit of conservation for the future. It's just huge. Morgan, the other thing I draw from the statistic on 5% of hunters, 5% of people are very anti-hunting, and mm-hmm. then 90% in the middle don't really know, is there is a group of about 5% plus some unknown 
5% of uh, the other category, 5% of people who have the kind of intimate relationship with the wilderness that you guys are both talking out of right now. And that's one of the things that becomes really clear, Brian, is you just get riffing on wildlife populations in North America is that there is an incredibly intimate and long-term relationship with uh, the many forms of wilderness in your life. Sure. Can you both rewind for us for a minute and talk about where your relationship with wilderness started? Go ahead, buddy. Well, before I get to where it started, I think we, we come from very different backgrounds, Bri, you yeah. and I, obviously. And um, I got connected with you in my pursuit of learning about hunting and wilderness and found myself at Colorado Parks and Wildlife at an Elk 101 course. And so that's a piece of our story. But I think maybe Blaine, a way to get there is on a recent hunt, um, you and I were camped above 12,000 feet and I mean, nowhere. Uh, were any other human beings near us. We had packed in, and we were under a full moon, and we had chased these alpine mule deer and set up camp and left our tarp off of our tent uh, because it was just so incredibly powerful to be under a moonlight that was so bright. It, it actually felt like daylight. And the holiness, the sacredness of this space, to be with a friend that I love, pursuing wild animals on their terms, to be a small part of something much greater in which I cannot control, um, in which I'm at the mercy of, in something that has inherent danger and risk, to be laying there under that moon, and Brian and I looked at each other, and we literally were without words. It was touching the soul uh, of man. And, and so there's where we started, but also there's just those moments that the pursuit of wild animals allows you to access because we hunt, we go further, we go higher, we go longer, we suffer more because of the pursuit of this end goal of harvesting an animal for the freezer that causes us to do crazy things that we wouldn't otherwise do. But that was a moment that, that no, was unbelievable. Was rich. No, that was quite a night. I'll never, ever, ever forget that night. I mean, never once. In, and what's what makes it even more powerful? <laughs> so we wake up the next day <laughs> and um, we... We 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 were just in the deer, and it was unbelievable, and just had amazing, powerful moments on the mountain. And what's crazy is a, a wave of smoke from a re nearby forest fire like hit us the, the next afternoon, and just kind of actually drove us off the mountain. But we just had you know, it it was it was amazing, and 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 although risky, like an incredibly safe and sacred space, like not a space where just no worry, no care, just, just beauty, just like unbelievable beauty. It was, it was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So but for me, like, you know, as a young boy, um, actually I remember my dad taking me out, he was hunting with a bow and he set me on a hillside at a place uh, out in Eastern Colorado. <laughs> well, he sat in a tree set. I sat on the side of a ridge by myself over a pond and I, I can remember ducks like dumping in and I, I couldn't have been, I don't know, five or six years of age. Like, and he left me there for the evening. And I just remember just, just sitting there and watching nature. I love, you know, just watching ducks land. And, and so part of that is my backstory just to get me interested, um, into that. And then just my like interest in wildlife, um, actually started for me in elementary school, just just being totally obsessed with um, hunting in a lot of ways. You know, I uh, Morgan knows the story well, but I, I love the elk rut. Like the elk rut is one of my favorite things in the world. And my parents lived in a place- Which is what, Bri? Just for those that are unfamiliar, yeah. what does that mean? So it's, it's the elk breeding season and it happens in September, typically August, September. And 
I mean, for those that have never been able to experience an elk bugle or a cow calf chirp or just the smell of elk, like for people like me, like that's just, I mean, if I was ever like, um, you know, going to lose my hearing or anything like that. There are sounds that you want to hear, obviously your children, your wife, all of those things. But the sound of an elk bugle, a turkey gobble, uh, I have a whole list of them that were just things that like everybody should just experience to know how amazing that is. Oh, it's so haunting. Oh, I mean, it's just this, it's the sound. And of course, as a hunter, there's a lot of hope there, but from even the non-hunting side of things, like if you're not just blown away by an animal making that sound, like, wow, I mean, it's pretty spectacular, right? And so, but, so we had elk that rutted near where I lived kind of through my middle school and high school age. And, and we used to go kind of chase after them and try and call them in. And I remember at a young age, like I found this amazing elk rub and I just had to have it. Like, and so I cut it down and I brought it and it, it sat in the corner of my room, like sap covered and everything over my bed, because like with that was just this amazing thing that was touched by some bull's antlers. And that for me was like, yeah, for me, that's an amazing thing. You know, it's just a uh, pretty spectacular. And so that's the type of category and guy that I am. Like I, I'm fascinated by these animals. I'm fascinated by their story and the lives that they live out there on the landscape and everything. And so it's. Oh man, you were just talking downstairs about when you begin to study these animals and see how stunningly intricate they are. That it was moose and bighorn sheep, sheep rams. Yeah. That no, I mean it's just amazing how they're designed. You know, they're designed to evade predators, you know, and that even includes us, but you know, a moose is antlers. And if you ever look at where they sit on its head in relation to its ears, you know, it just, it's clear that they're a huge funnel of sound into their ears and no different with the way in which a bighorn sheep's horns are not only dished, but they angle in and right at the base of their head where, where that dish all enters into is their ear. And so they've, they're designed because they're, they're hunted, right? I mean, they're, they're, they are food, not only for humans, but, you know, mountain lions, bears, any number of predators, uh, golden eagles, any number of things could prey upon them. And so they're, you, have to, you look at just how amazing they are to survive uh, in many instances. It's, just, it's fascinating to me. I'm curious for you guys. There seems to be this kind of domino effect that happens when – there's something that is powerful, is beautiful, that calls to you in nature and in wildlife. Um, and then there's kind of, kind of like some consequences and some causes of those things. Like if you really love these animals, then you learn their habits. You learn about the rut. You learn about uh, a rub, which I, I think most people are going to be like, is this kind of like a something you put on a steak you're about mm-hmm. to cook? But like, no, it's a, this is a branch. This is a tree. This is a place that they return to. Um, it's like the, the, the and elk has totally rocked. <laughs> right, right. I'm curious for you guys, like, what have the the consequences been of loving the wilderness and of loving conservation that have caused changes in your life? Like, you, if you really do love this, thing, right, then there's there's actually some ramifications for either wanting to take care of the space or respond to it well. So Brian and I come from really different backgrounds and different stories. He grew up in a wilderness culture, hunting culture. I did not. So I was introduced to it and pursued it as a grown man in my 20s. And um, one of the phrases early in the pursuit of learning and being initiated into wilderness and hunting was time in the woods, time in the woods. And what I realized in my mid-20s Everything in me was wired to find a shortcut. I don't even know that I would have said that at the time, but subconsciously, I wanted the quickest, easiest, fastest, cheapest way. Whatever it is, the beauty, the adventure, right? I I wanted a shortcut. And what I found with hunting was the pursuit of big game, particularly with a bow on public land. Oh my goodness, the odds are stacked against you so profoundly. And the learning curve is so steep. But the brilliance of that type of 
immersion as a man for initiation is that the soul realizes very quickly, and I will add painfully, there are no shortcuts and there's no substitute for time. And so what I mean by that is Brian was very well educated and I was a neophyte. So in my mid-20s, I found myself in the woods. I didn't know anything. I didn't have the right equipment. I didn't have the right background. I didn't have the right information. I didn't have the right survival tools or skills. And every bit of experience in the wilderness brought profound lessons. And my success rate was terrible. It was terrible. But what I can say is two decades into it now, not only have I become successful, but more importantly, I've become initiated through the process of submitting to time and no shortcuts and the painful lessons. Because out there, what I found that's so interesting is the lessons are very clear and very costly. Whereas in my regular kind of plugged in, um, urbanized or mechanical or technological world, the, the lessons are often unclear. And so what I think I appreciate is it was a submission to um, this takes time and there's no way to um, buy your way into a shortcut if you really want the formation of what, it, what Brian, what we're talking about, that it forms inside of the person. I love your question, Sam, and it assumes an understanding of the difference between conservation and preservation. Would you guys talk about that for a minute, Brian, on, I think most people coming to a conversation about the wilderness and an engagement with the wilderness, this logic of conservation starts to crop up in the conversation. How would you guys define it? What is it? And then how does it relate with what you've listed as the alternative, Morgan, preservation? Yeah, so <clears throat> conservation is the wise use of a resource. So we talked about before that we're going to, you know, um, recovery of a, of a wildlife population. And e even though We've allowed, you know, humans to then partake in hunting, to that offtake to feed their families, those types of things. Um, those were done in a wise way, right? It's the wise use of that resource so that it persists on, uh, on, the, on the landscape and the environment. Preservation is essentially kind of not necessarily the opposite, but, but it essentially is um, kind of off, off limits, if you will. It's, it's essentially saying it's, it's a – we're going to preserve it for the future, but we're not the, – the use piece comes off of that. So a good example would be that, you know, um, our national park system was set up um, across this country as a preservationist model. So we, you don't see hunting in parks. Uh, you don't see – like that. that's going to allow nature to do what nature will with, with very little human interaction with that, whereas conservation is this – there, there's human involvement. It's it's making the decision and managing the wild wise use of that resource. And so those are two, uh, you know, di different things. Um, to to preserve something and to conserve something are different. So I don't know. If well, and I think the mindset again when I came from a non-hunter perspective, I'd run into really well-meaning people. I was at Thanksgiving, and one of the relatives was talking about organizations they support, like the Sierra Club, and they had a mindset that the very best thing was to leave things alone. And I appreciate that. If you don't have a background, you think, of course, like, let nature take its course. The problem is it, it misses a vital variable that we've already, as human beings, caused incredible impact. Much of it is negative on the landscape. You know, Brian often, you know, we talk through Colorado and the land and like, the vast majority of public land in Colorado doesn't look the way it did before humans were here. You know, when left to its own resources with the impact of natural fires, um, with, with before deforestation, you know, you didn't have this monoculture of species and this, this rather unhealthy forest. And now, um, you know, we could talk a whole episode on what Smokey the Bear has done to, to wreck the forest. And it, it, the, the fact is... Um, we have already shaped it. And so, so much of what we would call wilderness 
and um, nature as a habitat around us, habitat around us requires management in order that it can thrive and the animals can thrive and the land can thrive and ultimately human beings can interact with it um, as it was intended. And it just takes some humility to own the fact we've already caused damage. And so that interaction is important. And that idea of just leave it alone and don't touch it. It'll be healthy. That's kind of like the parenting mentality of, you know what, I'm not going to talk about sex with my kids because I just think, you know, they'll figure that out. And it's like, well, how's that going? That's so good. I, I thought the other example I had was somebody backing off and being like, just kidding. I like, I didn't, you know, no more touching. I'm not going to break. I've already broken a couple of dishes in the kitchen, so I'm just not going to use the kitchen anymore or pick up the glass exactly. and hope nobody else wanders in there. Exactly. Brian, something you mentioned earlier is that a part of your job is convincing or recruiting or encouraging new hunters. Sure, sure. That, which strikes me as a f- kind of fairly surprising part of your job. And, and yet, like, I don't know why that's surprising. I think subconsciously there's part of my brain that's doing what you're naming Morgan of like the surely like less is more surely like the less we're involved. So Brian, when you recruit or convince or whatever the language is, is that true across the board? Is that like in particular parts of Colorado or the Rockies? Like where do you find, where are you finding these hunters that you, that there's a need for them? Like that just, I'm super curious. (laughs) Yeah. I actually, um, a lot of times Morgan, I talk about like, if the hunting public is declining, we're certainly not seeing it in the woods. But, <laughs> but you have to understand that like the tradition of hunting um, is not on an upward trend at all. In fact, it's it's kind of headed as as a number of generations get older and older, the recruitment of people and new hunters into um, hunting is actually been quite on the decline, and so. Um, and this is, you know, part of this, I guess some could say that it's, well, it's just job security for you, but the the reality is like, in a way that's true, right? Under the current model of the way in which we're paid, that comes from hunters and anglers. So if you don't have hunters, you don't have revenue, but, but on top of that, like you have this whole, like, um, you know, we're, we're trying to keep the, the tradition and the culture alive, um, and and I understand, like, from the surface, and, and Morgan has lived this, it's not so much for me, um, but if you look at hunting, I, I don't even know, if I was a complete non-hunter, especially with all the regulations we have, all the, like, if you think of the burden of responsibility that we place upon every hunter that we put in the woods, not only do they have to have the right license for the right place, they have to have the right weapon that meets regulation, they have to have the right color orange if they're they're gun hunting. Has to be the right time of day. Oh, you can do pink now though, right? They can do pink, yes. Um, so you have all these things that we place upon a person, and I totally get it. Like you do that versus a day skiing where you show up at the mountain and you have your rental, like everything's there. Like it costs some money, but that's an easy, very like accessible form of recreation. Like I think generationally, societally, like we're, we're losing that that generation of hunters. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm part of our agency, that's why we do what we do with youth, trying to get kids out there. We've, we've made regulations a lot simpler, licenses easier to get, all those things to just try and bring people to the field. And we have programs. We have, um, you know, we have a, many states have programs to recruit young hunters and young families into just the lifestyle of hunting and that experience of that. And, and so, so that we can keep this tradition alive and going back to the preservation versus conservation, understand that many of our wildlife populations, we've messed around with a lot of the predator systems. And so you think about deer on this landscape, you know, um, there's actually a lot of really good stories and history of, of populations that have been allowed to, to, to get so large that they exceed their carrying capacity and you see mass starvation. Uh, those types of things. So understand that just walking away, just walking away and merely not, um, you know, that has consequences. And the consequences are things like potential starvation, too many animals in the landscape, not enough resources for food for them to find. So all those things essentially kind of, um, they're each related. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, um, alluding to that change we've already implemented. Um 
what would the landscape look like if there were literally no hunters? Like if that, if tags were done and there was no more seasons, like what would we see in 10 years? So, um, that's an interesting question. Um, there's a variety of ways to look at this and I, this is going to get potentially too scientific, but I guess go with me on it. And, and uh, We're in. Yeah, we'll let you know if we can't understand it. That's anymore. right. That's right. So, if there is some biological limit of the animals that could that could exist on the landscape, okay? So how many how many deer can you have in a space, right? And so if a population is allowed to grow, um, the major limitation is still going to be vegetation, right? They have to eat. They're, these are these are animals that have four stomachs. Um, it's it's actually a really interesting digestive system, but they have to take in a lot of vegetation. Because it's not a very efficient means to feed your, or, uh, to live. You have to take in a lot of vegetation, and uh, that vegetation goes to, to, but it's not high, high in nutrition, tr- nutritional value, right? And so you have to eat a lot. Well, that means there's got to be a lot of things on the landscape for you to eat. And so let's say there's some limit, which there is, on the amount of animals that could be in a space. That means that they're either going to be removed one way or the other because that's just as many as could fit on the, the, the landscape, and that's called carrying capacity. And so what hunting does is it says, okay, we're going to manage the population below that limit so that things like starvation, sickness, those types of things don't limit that population, but actually hunting does it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. If allowed to be unchecked, what you would expect is – that the hunting mortality would be offset by things like starvation, things like a different type of mortality. We still can't manage for more animals on that landscape than, than some type of a cap. The question is, is what's going what's gonna to kill them? And what I appreciate, Brian, you know, that's from the biologist's perspective, from just kind of the sportsman perspective. Sure. I think there could be a mindset of non-hunters of the whole goal of hunting, um, government hunting organizations is – have as many hunters on the landscape as you can, make as much money as you can. But in fact, like Brian, your whole job is managing healthy populations, right? And, And ironically, over time, that maximizes recreational opportunities by having a healthy population rather than over hunting it. Um, and in reducing numbers or under and having the mass starvation. And so I think what I appreciate is, um, the hunter is integrated in the current system as a predator. And if you remove that, like y- you have other problems to deal with. I mean, statistically, uh, I heard actually yesterday that there are 100 fatalities per year in the state of Colorado by deer because of car accidents. You know, you hit one with your motorcycle, right, Sam? Yeah, I did. I mean, that's a scary deal. And like, but 100 fatalities a year, that's a big factor. And if there are more hunters removing some of those deer in, on the edges of urban environments, just statistically, you're going to have less fatalities. It's so interesting. It reminds me of recently an overheard conversation after a church gathering between a man who was a hunter and a guy who wasn't a hunter, and the hunter fortunately extremely patient and gracious, so you know it wasn't me in the conversation. And he got to this point where he invited the non-hunter to go, hang on, well, let's put it this way. What... What positive actions have you done to promote the flourishing of wildlife in Colorado? And it was, and I knew it was coming. It was just this beautiful moment where the person had to go like, well, I just leave him alone. He goes, oh, that's like checking out, basically never a good option on anything in your life and go, what about, no, 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 you, you seem to care about these things and that's beautiful and yes. to be affirmed. Yes. Like, yay for your love of elk. If you can come to a conversation and go, elk are amazing and go, what have you done out of that love or do you feel is appropriate to your love to promote the life of that animal and the species? And it's a radical mind shift to realize that the people that pursue them are overwhelmingly leading the charge exactly. on promoting the health and the life of that species. Blaine, you're naming something that's so vital in this conversation. And I just want to put this word out. It's intimacy. That until you experience it personally, um, you won't know the impact of the intimacy that forms through an animal 
through a landscape, and ultimately to God. I think, you know, in the last Anson's issue, you guys had that great quote that said, yeah, I have a heart. You say you have a heart for the poor, but how many poor can you name, right? I remember walking to REI because I loved adventure and I loved hiking. I hiked mountains and I rode a mountain bike. And then I pursued hunting and was woefully unsuccessful and eventually invested in a nice pair of binoculars and started learning about the animals and studying the animals, getting to know their nature. And I remember going back into REI and realizing REI has all this adventure equipment, but it has almost no binoculars for sale. If you go to the technology department, there's one, maybe two pairs because people aren't observing wildlife. Why would you sit around really and look and stare at the intricacies of an animal? But hunting requires it because you have to know the species, and particularly with a bow and arrow, if you want to get that close, you have to learn their characteristics. You have to learn details to see an ear or a leg in the field, understand how to track them. It's intimacy that's cultivated. And so even for that fact alone of what it requires to engage it, not just as an observer or someone moving, you know, I notice even my friends that are very adventure-centered and very athletic but aren't hunters, when we move through the wilderness, they're quite loud and quite unobservant of the landscape. Whereas when you're moving with a hunter— they're on the more quiet side and they're taking in. And it's a major shift in orientation that hunting provides. Well, and, and I like to think of it as think of the complete lack of intimacy as it relates to buying a steak at the store or getting some ground beef. Like the bottom line is, yes, you've used it to feed yourself and but you don't know the story there. And I think I think that there's nobility in hunting because it's it's an act that you've chosen to do yourself to take action upon yourself to to, to procure your own food, and there's something amazing about that, um, and uh, that that shouldn't be overlooked. Like it's important, and like Morgan says, like you have to learn these animals and their behaviors and what they do, and and that's part of the amazing piece of this. I have to know nothing about that steak sitting there in a cellophane wrapper, right? I, I just need money. Uh, to get there. Well, Brad, I love that. You know, Otto Leopold is the father of modern conservationists, and he has this great quote in the spirit of what you're communicating, where he says, it's good to own a farm so that we can learn that meat doesn't come from the grocery and heat doesn't come from the furnace. I mean, I grew up in in a household, in a culture in suburbia where meat came from the grocery and heat came from the furnace. And My children have now been raised in a culture that honors um, wilderness as culture of uh, wilderness, the shape of soul and hunting being a part of that. And the question around the table, as you said, Brian, is who shot that? I remember when Joshua was two, three, four, right? Daddy, who shot that? Did Uncle John shoot that? Daddy, did Uncle Brian shoot that? Did you, who shot dinner? Because someone shot it. And grandma came in from the Midwest to visit. And grandma brought in Midwestern cuisine, which is not the type of cooking that Sherry does. And Joshua got a big old casserole on the table. And he had quite the appetite as a little guy. And he had never seen a Midwestern casserole before. Mm, it's a thing to behold. That is a thing to behold. And Joshua bit in and he had this big grin on his face. And he said, Daddy, who shot that casserole? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we all laughed of the mindset. And I looked at him and I said, Joshua, your grandma shot that casserole. (laughs) Yeah, she did. It's just such a moment of, to what you're saying, Brian, it's it's intimacy, it's engagement, rather than money, um, just reducing things to a means of exchange. Okay, it's so good. Um, Something that has developed for Susie and I is, I, I don't have the conviction that, Everybody now, everybody now needs to go become a hunter. Like there's, my wife has a sensitivity to beauty that I would not ask that of her, but she partners with me in entering into it on my behalf. Like she knows where that meat is yeah. coming from, from the freezer. She knows that there's a cost involved, though she doesn't necessarily need to be the one to pull the trigger. Um, the question that it does evoke in me is like, this isn't necessarily the pro hunting podcast, though there are obviously many reasons why we would encourage someone to just 
be able to see nature. Um, Hank Shaw called it what, green blind. If you like don't know the difference between the plants, you're just going to see green. Learn the environment around you. Um, you're obviously interacting with part civilians, part hunters, part legislature. W- what is the role of the non-hunter that wants to be part of the conservation or even learn how to access this public lands that exists and is kind of this unknown area. Well, I wouldn't say, I mean, I, what I would say is, you know, you certainly like, there are a lot of people, including my wife, that's the same, you know, she doesn't have any interest in hunting. I think just having appreciation for the role of hunters and their interest and that they have a place is just as important. But I think that just interest in wildlife. I, I love visiting national parks. I think they're amazing. I'm okay that I can't hunt uh, at a national park because I just appreciate the beauty of the park. I appreciate the wildlife. I appreciate um, all those pieces. And so I, I think the most important piece of all of this is just trying to find fascination in wildlife, wilderness, wild places, um, just to exist like they are. Like, you know, I love the fact that um, people in Colorado in particular love to spend time outdoors. They love to hike mountains because their love of that is what's going to keep it for my kids and your kids. Um, Their protection of it into the future is absolutely critical as we grow and all of that. And so I think just fostering appreciation for wildlife and and wilderness is, is critical. And you don't have to hunt to do that. I, I don't believe that at all. But, um, but I do think that you know, yeah, just trying to get people exposed to beauty and that's important. You do have to engage it. Your examples aren't people subscribing to Outside Magazine, like you going to the parks, climbing the mountains. You you mentioned like taking youth out and being like, "Hey guys, mm-hmm. go be in the thing." That's right. Because there's not a substitute for that. Yeah, play in the dirt. You mm-hmm. know, make a fort. You know. Uh, build a fake camp campfire, any one of those things shows they're getting their hands on, they, they appreciate that beauty, those types of things. And, and I think that is critically important. Um, yeah, I think I would name, you know, I, I don't think it needs to be a pro-hunting podcast. I think I would name it as a pro-curiosity podcast that, that, you know, Tozier says curiosity is the sign of an alive soul. I think just to be curious about... Um, uh, you know, Isaiah says, no one stops to think. That was thousands of years ago. What a brilliant verse. No one stops to think. What, where does your food come from and what do you think of that? Not just engaging it just culturally or politically, but but soulfully. I think, you know, a great example, I didn't grow up in a wilderness culture. And as I got into the wilderness, I realized I was woefully unprepared from a survival standpoint, and I actually got lost on the mountain. Sam, you were a part of that hunting group. I remember it, yeah. I just crapped my pants and learned a lot, and I learned all that I didn't know. And through that, I became educated. I became curious about how do you survive. But over time then, my son and I went to a survival training with this brilliant man. It had nothing to do with hunting. It had to do with... Um, the most dangerous questions when you step off of pavement into anything wild and the most dangerous comment, it's, I'm just, I was just going for a walk. I was just checking out that edge. I was just, and this, this gentleman that had taught survival training for literally 50 years took us through a one-day course with fathers, sons, and fathers and daughters and just taught the basics of fire, shelter, hydration and signaling. And he took away all the draw or all of the um, the glamour of what you see online and in shows. And he said, this is about surviving for 48 hours and changing death to discomfort. Because in America, in the 48, you have a great chance of being rescued in 48 hours. So you just need to survive and breaking it down. But the point is watching to take that curiosity of something unknown taking risk and engaging that with my children and now watching my son take a bunch of young boys and build an emergency fire with his non-dominant hand. So he pretends like his strong arm and his strong hand, his right hand is broken and he can now teach another person how to make a fire with flint and steel and some fire starter and the agency of what it does. It's not about hunting. It's about curiosity. 
It's so good. Well, I think there's another piece, and I, you know, I've been able to spend a bunch of time in the woods, uh, and I, I continue to learn. But one of the things that comes back time and time again is just, honestly, how little you really need. Um, when I go on some type of backpacking, hunting adventure, like, you know, I, I remember back even when we were like in infancy of us going in backcountry hunting, like, man, we were heavy, like packs were heavy. And, and now through time, like you just refine your time in the woods, you t- refine your gear list. And now I've come to find out that like, man, I really just don't need as much as I used to think I did to do honestly some pretty epic things, um, you know. I uh, I used to take multiple changes of clothes, all kinds of things, and just I think that there's a there's a lesson in that as it relates to just life. Like you 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 really don't need a lot to survive, and that truly shows you kind of what yeah what that's all about. I love that, and I love I want to just returning to the story of lying yeah. underneath a full moon in a tent on a yeah. mountain, because one of the things that I'm aware of in this conversation out of my own history and especially my teenage years is you can't convince anyone that there's anything lacking in their experience. Like there are a lot of people as I've become very passionate about the role of hunting and its contribution to the human soul that I've tried to talk to, tried to talk to so many friends on just coming as the evangelist, be ready to go like you're, you need this. Your soul was built for this and just nothing happens and I end up damaging my relationships and go, okay, so I can't convince them that there's something lacking. But for the person who's beginning to, uh, as you say, be curious, I think one of two things happen. One, I just hear the story of lying in the moonlight on a mountainside and like something happens in me. Or that made me think of, you know, sharing the story of Sam and I like losing his elk in the dark together and having to make the call like we got to come back tomorrow we got to let this animal go expire and that there is when you share that story it reveals a quality of relationship a quality of reality that i think something in a person goes whoa hey that's something i don't have and then the wilderness is there is i feel like the reason that hunting comes up and the wilderness comes up so much for us is Uh, we're pretty deep into realizing what it does for a person to engage the wilderness, realizing what it does for a person to chase animals. And that all is invitation. I think even part of the spirit of this recording is go share those stories because when you begin to realize how much is available in a life with God, a life with one or two male friends, the own life of your soul, by regularly pressing into the unknown as revealed in the wilderness, like something happens. It is a transformative, I debated about using the word, but it's so accurate. It's a transformative experience to push out into the mountains, especially I think if you're making yourself a student of elk and trying to get close enough to shoot one. Blaine, I love that term, pressing in. I mean, that I think that's a really good description of what we respond to. I didn't know about big game hunting and I went out a few times to realize I know I know less than I even thought I knew, but the Parks and Wildlife offered this Elk 101 class. And basically it should be called hunting for orphans and fatherless boys because that's basically what it was, of boys of all ages, old and young. And I show up with a room of 30 people and there's these three, you know, professional with their uniforms up there, guys, and there's two old guys. And frankly, like I was just so young that I was really scared of them. And then there was this one younger guy and he was passionate about the land and the animals. And he was he was cu- still curious after a life of hunting. And he was humble enough to say, man, they still, I still haven't figured them out. And I remember listening to these three men talk and saying, I'm going to press in. I'm going to risk going to that younger guy and asking him. And the younger guy was Brian. And I said, Brian, hey, can I buy you coffee? And I said, luckily I drank coffee. (laughs) And I didn't ask the question that 99% of people ask, where can I go hunting? It's what do I need to do to learn? And Brian kind of gave me some tasks. And I think he was kind of testing the wires of, is this guy serious or not? Most people aren't. And he said, here's a piece of land that I encourage you to go scout. 
and it was in the Sangre de Cristo wilderness. And I went on a Saturday and I had never been that far off trail and I didn't know what I was doing. And um, I saw some beauty that just touched me that was from being off trail, very deep and pressing in. And I came back and reported to Brian, you know, a couple weeks later, I did it. And I could just see his light in his eye where we resonated with the same thing. It was a pressing in of taking a risk, but it can be as simple as sleep outside for one night, sleep under the stars, find a little piece of woods, get in a sleeping bag. It can be turn off the lights for an hour of silence in wilderness. In wilderness, I mean a piece of woodlands somewhere tucked behind the corporate building in your world. You can find pockets of wilderness um, in most places if you look hard enough, and it's pressing in is a good word. Yeah, and we typically, we've used hunting as a means to get that, but the story of us under the stars or moonlight could have been told the same way without bows in our hands, you know? Yes, we have stories of successful harvests and those types of things. But when you think about hunting, typically the harvest is somewhat anticlimactic because it usually means it's over, right? And, you know, that is kind of the tragedy of it, right? I mean, it's, it's over. And so you're on to the next task and you have to kind of re, re-engage and you know, check into the matrix and all of that. But the reality is it's, it's more than just the harvest. It, it's without a doubt. If that's all that impacts you, I, that's not a pursuit that you should pursue. <laughs> you shouldn't go after that. Like you should go out with the beauty of laying under a stand of aspens and looking up and just seeing what those trees look like from that angle. Or, you know, you should watch the sun rise while you're on the alpine, even if it's doing whatever, and just see how that moves you. And it'll move you in huge, huge, uh, measurable ways. 